Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast episode number 79. Was Salsa your first partner dance or was it Zook or how did that happen? Definitely not Zook. I think when I was 12, the first exposure I had was my brother trying to teach me West Coast Swing. And then his good friend, who was his teacher, had a Latin ballroom team that mm. was, you know, we were from a small town. We weren't competition style or anything, but yeah. we learned waltz. We learned salsa, um, you know, international style salsa, not Cuban mm-hmm. salsa, which was on one <laughs> for those salsa folks out there. And we learned West Coast. We learned East Coast. And we did little performances around town in that group. And then my cousin, uh, her mom in San Francisco had a big Cuban modern program. And uh, she, my cousin was amazing, is an amazing salsa dancer. And so we would go up to San Francisco sometimes. And as a teenager in high school, I would get to go to like the Cuban Salsa Rueda Festival with her. Mm. And she would just kill it, and I would stand on the sidelines and then sometimes get asked to dance, but... Baby, come with me, and I'll show you what my love really means to you. I put some candlelight, and every time she smiles, reminds me again why she's my type. Welcome to the Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast, the podcast dedicated to inspiring dancers worldwide whose hearts have been touched by music and dance. The universal language of dance and music is spoken by many of us throughout the world. We want to motivate the dancer in you by sharing stories, insights, and ideas to enhance your journey. Join us now with your host, Charles Ogar. Hello, hello, everyone. This is Charles with the Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast coming at you with another weekly episode. And in this episode, we have one of my very good friends that I've known for some years now. I don't know. Oh. I'm trying to think about where we met oh, gosh. originally. I think that's going to, we're going to have to like put some thought into that because it's been yeah, a while. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna ponder on that. But yes, my friend Devin is on the line. She. We've been friends for years. I don't. I'm. I'm really stuck on like where we even met. I think it was LA. LA where? It might have been at a festival, and then you had a weekender that I came to after. It might have been LA DFF. The LA Bachata Festival. Oh, maybe something else in LA. There's so many festivals in LA. It's hard to. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, I know I've taught at the Bachata Festival a couple of times, maybe two years, but that was like way back at the beginning of my dance career. And yeah, well, yeah, we'll get into our history and your history. But thank you for joining me in this week's episode. How have you been hanging? Thanks for having me, Charles. This is really cool. 
Um, I have been hanging well, you know, relatively. It's I'm so lucky to be, you know, not on fire, not, <laughs> not in a hot spot. I'm here in lovely Northern California, um, and life has changed a lot, but there's a lot of opportunities in that. Mm-hmm. So it's September 2nd of 2020. And can you give the context of you not being on fire just in case like somebody's listening to this episode like a year from now? <laughs> Everybody in all times everywhere. So right now in Northern California, we're having big wildfires. Um, and a lot of it was started by lightning. So over in my hometown where I'm staying these days, there's a lot of smoke and the, the air quality index is pretty bad. So what's hurting people is not really the fires. I mean, they're evacuating their houses. Mass amounts of people are evacuating, but for a lot of people, it's it's um, it's the horrible air quality. So I was mm. just that so many people are, you know, they're there because we, we can't all evacuate. So that's, yeah. that's why I have a bit of gratitude right now. <laughs> for yeah, now. that's awesome. Well, it's not awesome that this happening, but it's awesome that you are safe <laughs> and you have some better air quality and you're able to do the podcast. But yeah, I've heard of a couple of wildfires. My friend Kelsey in L.A., you know, Kelsey, yeah. Oh, Kelsha. Oh, yes. She oh, works love. combating yeah. fires and stuff like that. And I guess that's they happen often enough to be a full time thing in what? that area of the country so i guess it's interesting but yeah i I remember over the years hearing about different fires that happen uh, on the west coast well yeah kind of tangentially but it's really relevant it's like the native americans who used to live here used to do these controlled burns and Mm. now people are like oh you you really had something there people are like yeah no shit they kind of knew how to (laughs) do the land because it all gets so dry and then when it burns it really Mm. Because it's all combustible. For sure. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, Luckily, we had some rain here in Texas not so long ago. And we were going through a drought. But usually, we don't have risk of fires and stuff like that. Like, not not wildfires. I wonder what the last recorded wildfire was in Texas. But it it definitely gets dry, for sure. Yeah. Okay, Devin. Yeah. So, um... Let's let's talk some dancey stuff, yeah? So for, let's say somebody's listening to the podcast, they've never heard of you before. Um, what I've been telling my guests recently is like, can you give a description of your current dance life? But now since we're in COVID, it's like, okay, what did your dance life look like before COVID? And then also after COVID in a, in a nutshell. Okay, dance life in a nutshell. Here we go. Uh, before COVID, Jerry and I had just started our tour, and we were really excited. We had gone to Warsaw, London, Paris, Washington DC districts who hosted us, and we were kind of debuting this partnership and this content that we had co-created that was under his brand, uh, Deconstructing Zook, that um, he inspired and was to me, some of the most amazing content I've ever seen. So I was so excited to, you know, I think a lot of people had high hopes for what they were doing right before the shutdown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not alone in that. But we were on tour and then I was in Paris 
and I was about to head to Brazilian Dance Festival in Amsterdam. Um, this had been like, you know, my first trips to Europe and mm. I totally fell in love uh, with Europe and Paris. And That was your first trip to Europe? I had gone to Paris once before, like a month before, mm. and then I had gone again. Um, but yeah, that, that year was like, 2019 was kind of discovering a whole new world. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Jilson Festival is coming up and I was going to do a, a show with the girls Lumba Fusion team mm-hmm. we had. Um, and then, you know, people were talking about COVID, it was spreading and it became, it became kind of like a, like, not in, gosh, it's horrible to say now, but it's like, are you going to go? No, I'm not going to go. I don't care. There was like a lot of that conversation Mm -hmm. going like, uh, like, let's just go anyway. It's just the flu. And then, so I was hearing all of this kind of discourse and at the same time, Oh my gosh, it's really serious. The borders are closing. And I just remember one night at my friend's, my lease, my lease's house. I was mm-hmm. deciding whether to take the train to Amsterdam in like six hours, you know, packing my suitcase. Am I going to go back to California? Am I going to go back to, am I going to go to Amsterdam? My brother called me. He's like, you need to come home right now. The borders are closing. <laughs> <laughs> he jumped on the internet and helped me buy a flight because the prices an hour after we went online, went up to $4,000 for a one week. Damn. Yeah, so I had to make this big decision. Okay, do I stay in Paris and maybe never Mm -hmm. go back again? (laughs) (laughs) And watch my family die? Or do I just skip this amazing festival that I've been looking forward to? And it turned out nobody went to the festival. Mm. The artists who were already there went, they did an amazing, like, um, small party and but yeah I, I went straight to San Francisco my amazing cousin let me stay with her and then I started teaching kind of the curriculum that I had been saving up to teach followers mm-hmm. on tour the efficient follow and um, didn't really think about it I just kind of started filming myself and then I was like oh this is what I might be doing for the next few months mm-hmm. and then it kind of developed from there and it had a lot of um people had a lot of interest in it and i just was like oh let's just put it all online and it kind of came to our consciousness that this was going to be for a while so I started a facebook page and i did it all exactly groups and it just felt like <laughs> a grassroots almost mm-hmm. it was not planned i was like how do I get this out there? Exactly. iPhone and iMovie. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And what I've been doing, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in NorCal talking to my phone and editing clips of myself. Mostly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling like a crazy person, but it's been really fun to, to meet people from all over the world and mm-hmm. just to meet people. I, maybe never would have otherwise. Yeah, that's really the, the, the silver lining of the online teaching space, you know? Like, this is not new. There's been online instruction across lots of different fields of study, from yoga to 
design and all kinds of stuff, you know, but like it was never like the go-to thing really in the dancing, you know, uh, we had videos to share online as, as far as demos to get booked, to go to in-person festivals, you know, like that was like the Holy grail of what we were aiming for. And now to see that like now online is becoming like the standard of what you need to do. And it was, there, there were even memes. It's like, oh, you learned how to learn to dance online. Oh, you must be a crappy lead or a crappy follow because you don't know how anything feels. And yeah. now all the dance instructors like sign up for my online course. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Uh, like, yeah, so many of the tools of touch and, and communication that we learn to use in person are no longer useful. Safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and safe. So the specificity with which I'm having to teach has also challenged me because nice word. Are, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the specificity is really increasing the efficacy of my teaching. <laughs> I see what you did there. We're going to like play yeah. Scrabble one day or something. <laughs> yeah, from the Zoom meeting, I'm already learning so much. Like, mm-hmm. I use my words. Uh, I use my body a lot in class. And, you mm-hmm. know, uh, so it's it's helping me be more specific in my language and, you know, trying to make everything universal because people are coming from all different scenes. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the background is. I don't know how much souk they've taken. I'm teaching to all levels at once. For sure. Uh, and, you know, you have to be really clear on the online platform. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty awesome that you can literally have people sign up from your class from anywhere in the world where there's internet connection, you know? And yeah. as much as we love to travel and teach at events, it is kind of limited more or less to like the radius of the geographic area of where that event is taking place to yeah. the people that end up coming to that event. Yeah. And if you have somebody that's in Uzbekistan or something like that, that really likes your style because they have the video, like it's not going to be an organizer or a festival or something like that. That's going to happen there. But if you offer something online, it does give them opportunity to, to learn from you. And that could be um, obviously an income stream, which a lot of us are trying to, to navigate nowadays. So it's interesting. Yeah, and also Zook and I'm sure Kizomba too is like maybe Kizomba not so much, but our urban kids that mm-hmm. uh, Zook is so Brazilian Zook is so tight knit and it's communal. Mm. So you're really working like you know it's not it's no longer people in LA managing who's going to which mm. or which uh, class. It's like. No, everybody's navigating which teacher from around the globe, like mm. who from around the globe. Because if we have access to everything, mm-hmm. we get to decide where they want to take. It's no longer geographical. That exactly. Amazing. For sure. Because if you're really into Zook and you're in LA, then you want to take weekly classes. You can only go to the teachers who are in your area. Yeah. But yeah. online is different, you know. And yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this, this shapes the dancing across multiple different genres of partner dancing and solo dancing is becoming a thing. Dance bubbles are becoming a thing like dancing with somebody that you feel safe with. 
since socials and things like that can happen. And, but even for us, the professionals, like sometimes we can't dance with our dance partners. And I know that you're mentioning before, like you've only seen Jerry once since February or March. Yeah, we can say once and a half, we did a a masked visit, but he came and he got tested before and Mm -hmm. he's 11 hours away. So it's like anything you, any small interaction you want to have in terms of dance, even Mm -hmm. having to take these big precautions and for sure. It's a whole different way of behaving. (laughs) Definitely. So it's definitely awesome to see that you have your course and I've been seeing people post videos about themselves and working on their arms and things like that who have been taking your course. So that's been pretty cool. Uh, Can you let people know whether is it, is it a link like efficientfollowonline.com or is it a Facebook group they need to go to? Yeah, someday it'll be an actual link, but right now it's facebook.com slash efficientfollow. Okay, so I'll be sure to put that in the show notes of the podcast so people can click on that and head over to check that out. So um, adapting to this new age is definitely something. And what we're going to do now, as we've done in previous podcasts, is go back in time and see how you started dance. And I know a little bit like about your mom and things like that, as far as like your dance upbringing, but... Um, I guess even for me, I'm going to kind of have my coffee or popcorn to kind of like learn a little bit more about how you guys started dancing. Um, but yeah, I'm very curious to hear how you got started into dancing and how old were you? And I definitely know that your mom played a role and that's all I know. So I will allow you to fill in the gaps of what we don't know and will soon know. Yeah. I'm sure that that's probably one of the first things I mentioned when people ask me, you must, you must have asked me before because my mom had such a pivotal role in how I learned to dance. Mm -hmm. She was a modern dancer herself. Um, and she created this school called space stands for, it's an acronym stands for school of performing arts and Mm -hmm. cultural education. So I grew up in that and I was trying to recall my earliest memory and it's so fuzzy, but I don't want to tell you the story. So okay. um, we start creative movement. The school starts creative movement at two and a half. That's very small. Mm-hmm. My mom told me that. I was like, wow, those are babies. What, how do you even corral them? But I guess in creative movement, we had the open showing. And what it looked like to everybody in the audience was that one girl was left in the class alone. Like she had mm-hmm. her open door and nobody else showed up. And what it looked like was I went to accompany her in the frog dance because she was alone. So mm. I was like, I'll do the choreography with you. But what really happened, and I, I don't know if I've ever told my mom this story, <laughs> is that I thought it was my turn to dance. And so I just went up there and I was just a space case. So I started doing the frog dance. <laughs> oh no, I don't know this dance. Um, so yeah, I started off with the frog dance. That was my big break. <laughs> it's been uphill ever since. <laughs> uphill ever since. Um, so we had 
you know, space was kind of my, my daycare. There mm-hmm. were, I really remember being in break dance class and I had all these amazing teenagers around me who were really mentors. Like I just have memories of people teaching me how to stay on their heads, like people picking me up and throwing me mm-hmm. around. It was always something different happening, you know, being allowed around live drumming, drumming, like I fell in love with rhythm and um there was a lot of guest artists mm. doing different cultural dances who would come to space and we had from the age of seven we did like two big shows a year um and i wrote it down because i'm i'm nervous no worries and this was in ukiah this was in Ukiah. I wanted to tell you one of the, oh, it was called the legacy of movement. Mm-hmm. We did shows like this that, that talked about like um, people who worked in social equality and justice and stuff. Like that. So we do monologues and dance pieces around that. Um, and yeah, that was the unique upbringing that I had. That was, I'm so lucky in that way. And mm-hmm. I think that, being that surrounded by dance kind of spoiled me in a delicious way because I be I became able to walk into many spaces and feel like comfortable being like not knowing anything. Mm. Like, oh, it's okay to just sit here and watch and kind of try to figure out the code and like say hi to people. That became really normal to me, but going out into the world for other dance camps, I was like, Oh wow. This just wasn't handed to people. You know, Mm. people work really hard to be in the arts. So it also leaving space gave me an appreciation for what I had been brought up with and was so privileged to have. So what time frame or like what age range were you a part of space? Uh, two and a half. Mm-hmm. all the way through high school um i started helping my mom teach kids in middle school modern mm-hmm. dance like we did the Laban efforts with them like everybody go high medium low or you know helping mm-hmm. them creatively um and then in high school i started teaching belly dance so i learned i the things that really stuck with me were modern dance capoeira belly dance and then i had to make a choice when i was 12 between belly dancing and capoeira because they were on the same night it was belly dance that's what i ended up teaching um while i was in high school and then i moved away to college so Mm. but even in college i I came back to space and i taught for their musical theater program and it's still going on yeah so all their classes are so different now you can imagine we're in the pandemic everybody um for sure but pre-pandemic it was still a thing going yeah. on i got yeah, you they have a thriving after school program mm. like kind of enrichment stuff and they teach kids two and a half through 20 something mm-hmm. maybe, maybe 18 um but yeah they're still going strong they have an amazing state-of-the-art theater dedicated to children in sleepy little Ukiah. It's an old Catholic church that's been renovated. It's Interesting. really I I wished that I could have hosted 
some kind of Latin dance situation there. Mm. COVID, maybe someday. Yeah, I hear you. So can we delve a little bit deeper on you becoming a teacher? You mentioned that you started teaching in middle school and you did some belly dance teaching in high school. Did that just, your mom just anointed you to start teaching <laughs> or were there any hangups or was it easy just because you've been around so many dance instructors or how did that process go? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking uh, it's interesting to realize that it, it just felt like the family business. It's just what you do when you grow up. My whole family's in the art. So it was just kind of like helping mom out mm. and help mom like corral these kids. Uh, you know, it's fun. It's really fun work. You do a question of the day. Like mm -hmm. everybody wants their favorite ice cream. You sit in a circle and then you do all these different exercises. So. I was teaching in DC and someone from class was like, you teach like you're teaching to kindergartners. I was like, Oh, no. <laughs> but I think it's something about the imagery, you know, you have to really mm -hmm. imagery to keep people focused um, and entertained. Cause it, everything has to be a game when you're teaching mm -hmm. everything from, you know, sitting with your hands in your lap or responding when it's your turn. It, it's all, it's all got to be, it's all going to grab your attention. Exactly. Because so, if not, they'll apply the attention to somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. If it's a rule, then it's like, what am I doing? <laughs> it's got to be fun. It's all got to be fun. Um, yeah. So then I just became obsessed with belly dance and I was going twice a week and then I ended up being this troupe called Troop Satya where we did, you know, Northern California tribal, tribal belly dance mixed with cabaret. And we like toured to different festivals in NorCal. So mm -hmm. I became pretty confident in that. And I had an amazing teacher and she trained with Suhela Salampur, who's one of the first people to kind of codify uh, the different muscle groups that are used in belly dance. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that a lot of that, teaching style kind of trickles over in how I teach today. A lot of like layering and how to, how to isolate. So things, you know, you can manage five different things at the same time. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a super unique upbringing. I was always at the studio doing something and I had my little, it was really rewarding to be a high schooler already teaching, you know, middle schoolers how to do this dance that I loved so much. So, yeah, I think it's always been um, something where, okay, if you don't know, you just go in and you try and you bring your positivity. Hmm. You go. That reminds me of the time. So that winging it and just trying things out reminded me when we were in Denver last December and we went to that place where the West coast swing and you just oh, danced yeah. with those guys and they like took turns leading you and you're just like, okay, I'm just going to make the best out of this. I'm like, okay, that's them in there. <laughs> right. The winging that was fun it. to watch. Yeah. That was so fun. Yeah. Oh, that's something. My brother was also a social dancer. So he would, teach me sugar push in the living room. That's a West coast. Mm -hmm. So I got to be a Jack of many trades, master of none. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. 
So thank you for sharing. That was pretty cool to hear about the space and uh, that's um, the awesome space of space to give you that, uh, I guess, opportunity to learn so many different styles and things like that. And you mentioned that you've done a couple of performances as well. Yeah. Yeah, we had summer camp, which was a big musical theater camp every summer with 65 kids. Mm. Um, and we were constantly having open showings for modern dance. And uh, I was on a ball, Latin ballroom team for a while and belly dance. So I was I was in like every one of the open showing pieces mm. uh, just because I was there all day. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we got to put this girl somewhere. Yeah. Put this girl in this daycare that is also a dance class. Um so we I was just constantly in shows and then high school I did a lot of theater. So mm-hmm. I was I was managing all these different activities. And there was like points where I was like, "Oh boy, I really better focus on one of these things." Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to be sort. But you know that that quality of knowing a lot about a diff, a lot of different rhythms and modalities has really served my kind of addiction of uh, learning different social dances as I went mm-hmm. on to. I just Definitely. love. That. I love being a big. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you mentioned that you were really into belly dance and really into theater. It's funny that you mentioned theater because I interviewed Jessica Lambden and she's also has some history in theater. I guess unsurprisingly in a way, when you take a look at her videos that she posts to to Facebook and things. But um, I think when this podcast comes out, this will be the week after Jessica's podcast. So um, you'll have to listen to that podcast because she definitely has a a passion for theater as well. But I wanted to see you grew up and you, you mentioned modern dance, you mentioned capoeira, you mentioned belly dance, and then you mentioned a little bit of partner dancing as well. So when did, I guess, how does that balance go? Because it seemed like more predominantly solo dancing. And then obviously was salsa your first partner dance or was it Zook or how did that happen? Yeah, definitely not Zook. I think when I was 12, the first exposure I had was my brother trying to teach me West Coast Swing. Um, and then his good friend who was his teacher had a Latin ballroom team that mm. was, you know, we were from a small town. We weren't competition style or anything, but yeah. we learned waltz. We learned salsa, um, you know, international style salsa, not Cuban mm-hmm. salsa, um, which was on one <laughs> for those salsa folks out there. And we learned West Coast. We learned East Coast. Um and we did little performances around town in that group. And then my cousin, uh, her mom in San Francisco had a big Cuban modern program. And uh, she, my cousin was amazing, is an amazing salsa dancer. And so we would go up to San Francisco sometimes. And as a teenager in high school, I would get to go to like the Cuban Salsa Rueda Festival with her. Mm. And she would just kill it. And I would stand on the sidelines and then sometimes get asked to dance, but just did a lot of absorbing there. Um, 
And that was so cool because the Cuban community was really strong in San Francisco. Mm. And then social dancing, um, back to that in Ukiah, one hour away from my hometown was this place called Monroe hall. And I think it's, it was still active before COVID and every Sunday they would have line dancing, West coast swing nightclub, two step and East coast swing. And it'd be like, a different song, uh, a different genre, every song. Hmm. And I was like the only 12 year old with all these adults. I remember my mom asked me one day, she's like, is it okay with you that you're dancing with like all these old people? Like, yeah, it's normal. But looking back, I'm like, wow, I was really social dancing with, I mean, you would never s- see that really in LA. You wouldn't see no, like, you wouldn't. People, like, so that became really comfortable really early for me to like, you know, ask somebody to dance who I didn't know who was a lot older than me and then just try to figure out how to dance with them. Mm. But that was a short period in my life, but it was, I think it was significant. I got you. Into, you know, what I do now, what I love now. For sure. So how does what you've shared with us so far tie into Zook? How did you find out about Zook? Because I guess, uh, was it that far away from when you first started Zook? Or was there another period that you went through before you finally found out about Brazilian Zook? Totally. So I went to college for acting. I got my mm. BFA in acting at uh, University of Southern California. And salsa became sort of my escape. Because we were working from like, you know, 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Um, and all these crazy soul-bearing exercises. Mm-hmm. Where you go to the camera and you just, you know, talk about your issues. I'm just kidding. But it <laughs> was really intense class is what I'm trying to say. And then I, I would just want to get away from it all. And I, I would go out salsa dancing because I kind of knew how to do that. Uh, you know, I never trained, but I was like, okay, we did this my little sleepy hometown version of what this is. I'm going to try to like, I'm going to try to sit there and copy people and have a good time. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was in college. That was kind of my, my freshman year. Oh, USC had a great salsa team too. And I would, mm. I would go to those classes, break on too. Shout out to break on too. And then salsa on the promenade. That was one of the main places I would go. Oh, we went there. You and I that went there. That sounds familiar. You Remind remember? Me. It was in Santa Monica. Um, and there's like an outdoor DJ right on the promenade. It's so fun. It's open under the stars. And it's a mm-hmm. real club. It's called Salsa Familia. And mm-hmm. gosh, I'm trying to figure out why we were there. But you and I had some great dances where I also had no idea what oh, I was Oh, yeah. You were... Was there oh a Kizomba group there? Yeah, there was. So there were like all these kind of groups there. And I think Chris Kizomba was there. But yeah. I remember dancing salsa with you and having like a really fun time and people were watching. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because we have like these little pockets where our, where we met yeah. several different times. It's crazy. But I remember that being one of them for sure. And you yeah, were like wearing something sparkly. I could have been. <laughs> could have been wearing something red. 
I remember people mm-hmm. like like color of their clothes too. That's funny. Um, so yeah, I spent I spent a lot of time there. Just you know that I probably in hindsight should have been spending learning salsa in a class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> would have been a lot more productive but um it was i was there for fun i didn't think i had no idea i would have a career teaching social dance mm-hmm. um, i just loved it so much and I became addicted to it and it was one sunday and looking back on that night it must have been the pre-party for la zook festival hosted by shani mm-hmm. i think it must have been the first one either the first or second and I saw people dancing to a different rhythm, like down the street, sort of like the Kizomba people had been. Mm-hmm. And I went over and I was like, what are they doing? I saw two men dancing together. One of them had this flowy hair and the other was one was it like, Riel? It was Riel and Eva. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> you know, in my mind, oh my God, this is a mixture of all the things that I already know how to do. I'd be great mm-hmm. at that. So I was probably really annoying. I like, I went up to Evo right after and was like, Oh my God, hi, where do you teach? What is this? And he told me where his class was. And I showed up the next week. I, I found YouTube mm-hmm. and I saw Jilson Damasco. He was my first YouTube that I found. And then I saw Evelyn and Shanji. I just mm-hmm. went down viral like most people do. And, um, yeah, that was that was my first intro. It was so magical. Mm. But I just love that the first time I ever saw it was Riel and Evo dancing together. I'll never forget. Nice. Very nice. And so you're taking these classes with Evo and Shani. They were in a partnership at that time. Mm-hmm. And they're also running their event, LA Zook. And what happens next? You so you come in with all your dance background. Did you like skyrocket the ranks of Zook or how well, did it go? You know, the, the ranks of Zook, <laughs> very small. <laughs> so I probably um, went through phases of feeling like, oh yeah, I got this because there was no reference. But at the beginning, um, I was going to like one hour a week of Yvonne Chani's classes. Mm-hmm. And then I found Lena, who was my first Lambada teacher. And she's incredible. She toured with Brazuca and Braz dos Santos, and she had just come back. Mm-hmm. So I took a private lesson from her. And then I, ha- I went to my first festival-ish. It was a weekender mm-hmm. by Joe Sandoval called uh, Zook Beach Week in LA. And it was another crazy, like dance addict situation where I was driving an hour after my full days of college. I would dance till like 3am and then come back and try to like be present. Um, but I just, I just felt like I had to go, you know, that feeling where you're like, yeah, God, definitely. I had the bug. Um, that's, I think also where I met Chris Kizomba. Mm-hmm. And Found Kizomba too, because Evo was dancing Kizomba with Shen. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, both. Yeah, you know. And um, I took my first, lum- well, maybe it was my second Lambada with uh, private with Leo Bruno. And that was mm-hmm. incredible. And just 
I think that event really had the spirit of Brazilian Zouk and Lambada that we were all on this rooftop. We were, everyone was partying, happy, singing, right on the beach. Everybody was just crazy for dance. Nobody stopped dancing. Um, and I think I, I also fell in love with, with that kind of spirit of like joy and laughter and mm. It was it was so different from the academia I had come from in USC. All of a sudden, yeah. I was an amazing secret world. Yeah, and then um, I met Christine Clinton. Came from Brazil, mm-hmm. and uh, they started teaching classes. And then I started studying with them, and and that was when I really started to understand the, the patterns in Zouk and sort of the, the foundation of the dance before was more like, uh, you know, I'm just here to have a good time and try something new. Mm-hmm. When I was, with them, I was like, okay, I'm in love with this. How do I continue to learn? And then I, after college, uh, started interning with them. Um, yes. I need to study Lambada started traveling to learn that kind of stuff. So So how long did it take from that point to when you started teaching Zouk? Yeah, I was doing some classes for Hanata Pesanya USA. Mm -hmm. Um, What is, okay, what is Hanata Pesanya USA? Talking like you know the <laughs> acronyms and these abbreviations. You know, so I've, I've heard of Renata. Renata was at Canada Zoo, and I know that she's like the yes. goddess <laughs> that everybody like adores and looks up to. And she was there at Canada Zoo with uh, Jaime Rocha. This was Canada Zoo 2019, last year. So that's the first know. time I've heard of the name, but this is the first time I actually saw them in person. And I know that she's one of the first or maybe the first that like has a pedagogy for Zouk that a lot of the pros have studied through or from. And so I think that's what I know about Renata. So I have, I've never heard of Renata USA though. Renata Pisania yeah, USA. That's well said. Um, Christine Clinton are two of her students from Rio de Janeiro. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christy grew up in Tennessee, but then, went to Brazil, partnered with Clinton. They came, they took the information back to um, Los Angeles. And Clinton is amazing because he created this huge list of all the moves. Mm. And they started this school with her curriculum, but she, but he like wrote it down, mm. um, sort of codified it in that way, breaking it up into level 100, level 200, level 300, which is so important if, you know, for the survival of a dance to kind of write things down and go, okay, sure. this, is, this is so much amazing stuff is born on the dance floor. Mm-hmm. So someone's like, you know, you do this first. If you want to repeat it, then you, you need to know what you did and what's yeah. the technique behind it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. So we had a dance team where we did some of Hinata's original choreography, mm-hmm. um, which was so fun because he really felt like the roots of all these, uh, you know, the way that Lambada was influenced by all of these uh, Brazilian ballroom dances. And then Hinata's jazz background was 
so apparent in those choreographies and it felt like being in a time capsule a little bit Mm. for the way that things were done. And that was so cool in a way to start at the beginning um, of Brazilian Zouk. And um, because, you know, there's so many variations now, but to know where it came from was so valuable. So that's in Atapensanya, USA. That's their school. And they're still doing things in Long Beach. And I think they also have online offerings. Mm, nice. Yeah. Um, Clinton, so you were teaching through that? Yeah. So I started teaching, uh, assisting Clinton and Christy. Um, sometimes they would have workshops and I would uh, be the you know, the door person, um, Mm. we were doing trade and I would, I would be allowed to like watch some of the privates. Um, they hired me for Rio is here, which used to happen every year. Um, that was really nice. I was dancing with JC, our saga. Uh, we had like a big height difference, but we, we loved dancing with each other. It was really fun. (laughs) uh, let's see what else and then from there I met Jerry I had met him a few years prior but he moved to LA Mm. and he and I clicked really well at the social we were just really goofy what I loved about the way he danced was he was so creative and he played on you know, so many parts of the music and the, the feeling of his frame was really nice. And so when I started partnering with Jerry, he was doing all this um, kind of really detailed work. If you take in deconstructing Zook, it's, it's so, well, it's, it's Zook deconstructed too. It's like most basic, you know, functional mm. parts. You're going to rotate this way and then you're going to step and you're going to transfer like this, um, which was super different than the way I had been thinking. And it kind of exploded my mind and I became fascinated with that and going, oh, my gosh, like Tango has figured out so much of this already. And this dance already knows mm. that. Wow, look at all these things Zook can can learn from. And we started working together, developing material he was, I think he'll be okay if I say this. We joke about this. He was obsessed with writing things down and probably still is. And I was kind of like, ah, let's just wing it. I mean, <laughs> that kind of makes sense, right? From my upbringing. Let's just, let's just go. We mm-hmm. know what it kind of looks like. And he felt like I was not specific as a teacher. And, but I kind of held the room in a fun way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like now as we work together, we've kind of switched roles. Like I take a lot of notes now and he wants to know more about patterns. Mm. Um, so Jerry, like all about mechanics, very few patterns, loves to improvise, is a genius on the dance floor at a social, hard to retain patterns. And so we're, we're kind of like switching those roles now. It seems like mm. in we work well this way. Um, Hearing you say that reminds me a little bit of like what I remember sometimes social dancing is like, man, I wish that I had like a freaking drone that's follow me around on the social dance floor recording me because like you do some things and I'm like, that has to have looked so cool or I hope it looked cool. 
but like nobody was there to record it and you don't know exactly what you did or what she did. So then it's like, just, it just washes away into the social dance ether. Hopefully it, the inspiration will strike you again and you'll be able to figure out what happened, you know? But yeah, that's, that's, that's a real thing. True. I didn't even make that connection. You guys, you have this thing where you break down all the barriers of what it's, what maybe you were taught and mm. things come out of that. Mm-hmm. And you just, when you social dance, you're so amazing. You're constantly riffing and like really listening to the music. Mm. That's so cool that I, when I danced with him, I was like, Whoa, this guy's a genius. Yeah. And sort of the same way, like that's an incredible skill to be so present. Mm. The musicality uh, is just like, it's the inspiration for the movement. Yeah. And then it just goes through the filter of whatever you're working on mechanically. It's very interesting to, I guess, witness and to experience. And I'm so glad I have my GoPro now because I have a GoPro. It has 256 gig memory cards that can record like 10 hours. And I just leave it on. And I try to record as much in my practice sessions Mm -hmm. as I can so I can go back and review it. But man, it's just like, you think like sometimes I remember recently, like I didn't feel like practicing at all. And Sarah was here and Dahi was here. And I'm like, uh, okay, let's dance and see what happened. And then I just came up with these really interesting rotational moves. And I kept exploring more and more and more, but yeah, I haven't been, I have to look at the videos to like be able to replicate it. But like, it's almost like a blessing and a curse because it's like, it's a blessing that because you're able to execute them, but then it's like, okay, that's a new thing. That's a new, let me open up a new page in my notebook and like write down this. And then you go into another creative thing. It's like this never ending thing. So then it's like, how do you make sense for it? Have a form if it keeps evolving, you know? Do you have the discipline to go back through your videos and like codify what you did? I'm working on that. I have this, notebook that I'm trying to do that. And I actually went back and looked at some of our videos that oh, we did. And I'm trying to like go back, back and like clean up my steps since we have time now and mm-hmm. start to see like what I did and why I did what I did with the music and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's not easy. It's very easy to record. And then it just sits on a memory card for years and years and years. Yeah. That's so beautiful. And it brings me to something I wanted to talk about that like in hearing when, when people say like, Oh, I don't like this person. I really feel like everybody is a genius in some way. Mm-hmm. And if you say you don't like someone who, who maybe has been dancing for a long time, then it's like, wow, that person really hasn't discovered the genius of that person because Mm. It's a real amazing skill to do what you're talking about and come up with moves from almost like divine inspiration to the music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, and then what Clinton and Christy have too is also like amazing genius that he remembers the day and the time and what the room looked like when he was taught the move. And he remembers the entire pattern and how she taught it. Like, Oh my God, incredible. And then training with like, Braz dos Santos, you know, one of the original, one of the like very influential Lombada dancers, mm-hmm. um, his classes are all about the history and, you know, this genius of like 
the the history being in his body and his storytelling ability of this mm. movie here and this is why it's important and i remember how i felt during this time when this move was created and then there's like jilson he he's a genius at getting the party started and he mm. just wants people to feel happy but if you go like oh you know jilson's you know patterns aren't intricate it's like well that's not what he's Bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jilson has incredible patterns. I'm just saying, like on the dance floor, what he's showing off is something different. And if you if you judge one dancer through the aesthetic eye of something else, sometimes you're really missing the point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point to bring up. Everybody's bringing something different uh, to the table, you know. Yeah. I have a question before you continue to talk about your history, just for somebody, let's say they're listening to a podcast and they're like, what's the difference between Brazilian Zouk and Lombardo? I know that's a huge deep subject, (laughs) um, but can you like spend like a few minutes talking about that? Yeah, I'll try to do my best. This is a big conversation and I, I sort of made that sound because it's, I could easily say something that someone disagrees with. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's important to say. I mean, the the more you start digging, like there isn't like one, one truth, like everybody has their own truth that was happening, maybe even concurrently in history and people just have different puzzle pieces and you have to kind of just take a look at everything that happens and listen to it all. But like to say, like, there's only one true way. I think through the history that I've done through just being around partner dance and the people that I've interviewed, like, it's just, it's too immense to really break down to like one, one true history, you know? Right. And part of that is that all these different dancers of Lombada, like if you, I always think of it like a map and I want to do this someday. Like you have Mm -hmm. a map that goes through time and you see how everybody takes the dances to different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Have YouTube. So they started all evolving in different ways. Exactly. Um, But the the short breakdown I think is that um, Jaime Rocha and I'm sure a few others saw Lambada took it back to their schools and wanted to, um, kind of mix it officially with other Brazilian dances. And I think the mixing also started on the dance floor with uh, new sounds like Caribbean Zouk when they came mm. to Brazil. So before Lambaderos were dancing to Lambada mm-hmm. and Lambada should, sort of had a, a short life, the music. Yes. Um, the Caribbean Zouk music was a little slower. So people started mixing and you know, Brazilian dance has such a rich history of partner dance. So it's really was- impressive to to start to learn and peel back the layers of how many social dances they have. And yeah. it's really interesting because they're in South America and you would think, OK, Latin country, salsa, bachata all day. But they're like in their own little ecosystem of dance in Brazil that's different yeah. from the rest of the continent. It's crazy. Uh, and all these subgenres of the same genre mm-hmm. so you know combined with like mashishi lundu all these um 
dances from the Afro diaspora that created Lambada, that was mixed with other Brazilian partner dances into this hodgepodge of uh, moves. And Brazilian Zouk became something more linear. It mm-hmm. was danced, um, on one timing, which they start on the slow step. I think in its beginnings, it was mixed more with jazz with the influence of Hinata Pisanya a lot because um, that was something she was studying. And uh, a lot of lunging, a lot of really taking the body um, on its axis through space rather than having the feet do most of the work mm. uh, and, and the hips be really free. It was more uh, using the plie and the rolling like figure eight through the ground in and out of the floor um so then i know you had larissa on here mm-hmm. she started the brazilian zoo council to kind of help establish what brazilian zook was because you had just jilson who took it to argentina brass who went on tour with kaoma and people were kind of like well what do we call this thing do we call it lambada or do we name it after the music we're dancing on now which is mm-hmm. In Zouk, if we call it Zouk, then Caribbean people will be confused because that's not how they dance to Zouk. Um, That's a great history if you guys have time. But some people would also argue that Brazilian Zouk dancers dance Lombada. And Mm. we all dance different variations of Lombada. And there's like a more modern version and there's a different version. And Urban and, Lombardo. Yeah, right. <laughs> and there's also something to be said for like, no, these are completely different dances. They have different feels. They have different ways you use the joints. But I hope in the classes that we teach to kind of bring that together, because I think the community is too small to survive with tons of division like i don't like this way Mm. you know if we can um help people and that's what i love about zenzuk what jessica and riel do uh help people be able to dance on many styles of brazilian zouk and lombada Mm. so fun to hear all these different styles of music and be able to change your steps accordingly and to dance with different partners for sure Giving those tools, I think, is really um, where it's at. <laughs> yeah. And that reminds me of like even starting to blend into other genres. Uh, like when we are on the dance floor at a festival or our time together that we had in Austin or in L.A. where we start to mix urban kids and stuff like that with Zook like steps and I I have more legit Zook in my system now than I did before. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to start to mix. And I, one thing that I really, really love about Zook is like, they, they really are loose about like the music that they dance on yeah. and in kids, it's not. So there's still a little bit more like we can only dance kids to this kind of music, but like going to a Zook social almost reminds me of going to like a fusion social because just the, the, the variety of sound that you hear is, is I guess this new age techno electronic kind of music, which is pretty nice. And it could be really slow tempo or really upbeat. So it's like this, I don't know, it's really fun to dance and bring the element into it as well. Um, right. So yeah. 
Because how are you going to dance the same way on all these different songs? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Did you see the new video? I think maybe it happened two days ago, but Sara Panero put out a video and she's dancing Zouk and Salsa and Samba de Cafeira mm-hmm. in all in one minute. So like they choreograph like different uh, partner dancers to go to this song and they're just saying like, hey, if we know how to dance all these songs, why do you have to be limited to only dancing one genre for that song, especially if that song isn't tied to any of those genres, right? So it gets a little crazy, but I think it's pretty cool for those dancers who have uh, lots of different disciplines um, of partner dance and not just being limited to just one, especially if the song has nothing to do with any of the disciplines that that person knows, you know? Right. Especially if it's just completely out of context, wild card song. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. So it's yeah. really fun. Brazilian uh, Lambada has been dancing on different kinds of music from the start, you know, mm-hmm. flamenco, like all different sounds from the beginning. So it's, it's nothing new. It's really fitting for the tradition, I think, to be dancing on other sounds. And at the same time, I think the worry for people is, oh gosh, we're going to lose the story. We're going to lose the origin story, the respect for how it all started. Mm into a fusion so it's like somewhere between continuing to tell the story of how it all started and at the same time you know having empathy for other people's ways exactly which is characteristic of how the thing got started to begin with yeah um because like you said before like dancing lambada on a style of music that's not lambada is kind of how it got started and technically people are still continuing that today and the same thing with kids you know they people took semba and started dancing it to other genres of music and that gave forth to kizomba so now but then when people take kizomba try to dance it to other rhythms and it's like this big lashback but it's like it's almost like this is the essence of the dance in a way. And if for people who have that worry, I think it's, 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 it's a valid concern. You don't, you don't want to lose the history. And I think this is why putting effort into writing things down and these podcasts and like instructional videos and all these kind of things give people the resources that they need to study and read up on these things and still allow them to live in, in the present day um, of the music that is of that time. You know, like if Michael Jackson was like the top artist of decades ago, then obviously that's going to influence. Yeah. Um, Now we have WAP (laughs) and things (laughs) like that. And I don't know, like different things. And also the power of social media is also crazy nowadays as well to allow people to like cross train and get inspired from different types of movement, you know? Oh my God, that's so true. I just feel like, you know, in my dark days where I'm on Instagram for seven hours, it, <laughs> styles will change within minutes. Mm-hmm. Like, you guys all found out that you're doing the same moves in Brazil and Argentina and England. Mm-hmm. Everyone's doing the same move. And then the next day, everyone else is doing a different move. But mm-hmm. it's it's trending so fast. And you kind of go, oh, my gosh, the evolution is just exponential, just like technology. How do we keep up with this thing? Mm-hmm. Shanji is one of my favorite teachers um, saying something like, you know, 
and it was kind of inflammatory when he said it. I think in the future, everybody's just going to be social dancing. There's not going to be a style. And I think some people, you know, clutched their mm-hmm. their because they were like, no, we need the integrity of the dance. And mm-hmm. I, I also see, wow, with the amount of globalization and communication and technology, it's like, why not? Exactly. Why not be able to adjust your frame? Why not be able to, you know, learn all the tools to be able to dance all these different styles? Mm. Yeah. And I think you just have a conscious decision. It's like, hey, okay, in this particular moment, I am an instructor of this dance. So I'm going to give my information in this context and my movement in this context, you know. But now I know my buddy who dances kids, salsa, bachata, and zook, and WAP just came on, so now the way thing goes, you'll find Charles on the floor. Um, there's have you heard the 80s version of remake of yeah, WAP? It's, it's so good. I can't stop listening to it. I don't know why, but it's just it feels so nice. I don't know. <laughs> Will you do really a solo video <laughs> dancing? I don't know. It's I don't know. It's very like Michael Jackson-esque. Yeah, it's um, it's really nice. And just like the harmony and the melody of everything. I'll put it in the show notes if you haven't heard it already, but it's, it's, I don't know why I heard it. And it's just like, I need the whole song. And then I found the whole song and I've been just been listening to it. But anyways, um, let's bring it back. (laughs) (laughs) Your dance history. So, um, to talk a little bit about the partnership before we get close to the end of the podcast, um, had you been in a professional dance partnership before? Was Jerry the first one? Um, how was that experience with like working with him to like making that decision that, hey, we're going to work together and have this be a thing? And it seemed like 2019 was going to be like a leap year for you guys into 2020. Yeah. And then... Blood <laughs> twist. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I I think, you know, aside from having the partnerships on this small ballroom team that I had when I was young. Mm -hmm. Um, JC was kind of my first partner and we competed in LA Zook together and we worked for Hanata Pisanya USA a lot together. And I learned a lot, man, training with someone, you go through a lot of learning curves about, you know, how to talk to someone like if something doesn't feel right, or if you want to try something, what a learning process. But um, yeah, that was sort of my first experience. And then Mindy and I from LA, Mindy Chen, mm-hmm. um, we partnered because her partner for uh, the United States LA Zook Open mm-hmm. got injured a month, wait, three months or a month. That's an important number before the competition. <laughs> and she was like, do you want to do this competition? Do you want to lead me? And so I uh, attempted to lead her in the competition. We got second place. Mm-hmm. So, but, nice. Uh, but we were like, you know, thinking of doing this female partnership for a while. And a lot of people were like, and eh, it's not going to work. And we were kind of like, why not? I was. And, and Mindy went to pursue, I think, um, working in the medical field and mm. uh, I'm probably saying that wrong. She did something in biology. And um, then, then Jerry, I guess was kind of like my third experience 
And we did like a lot of a lot of class prep, not so much working on our own dance. It was a lot of um, teaching. So we had to acknowledge, okay, we don't have this much time together. Jerry's always on tour. Devin's got her classes in her socials. I can't go on tour. Um, there's also the issue of like, you know, he had already been booked for being paid for one person for all this mm-hmm. whole I was doing the LA stuff. He was going out every weekend. We only have a few hours to plan together. So it was spent on what are we going to teach? How are we going to teach it? Do we agree on this thing? Kind of reconciling both of our, our, um, back, our dance backgrounds, mm-hmm. which was challenging as well. But gosh, we learned so much from each other. And then touring... Uh, it was so much fun. We I got to learn meet so many people and deconstructing Zook got easier and easier. We started to know like, you know, more about what we were talking about, the differences, mm-hmm. what we were saying and other people were saying, how to break things down in a way that honors all the styles, but is really useful for individual technique to be able to move through those styles. You know, uh, and it was really well received by advanced communities. And it's something that I think we would have to think about if we were going to go into a completely new community and Mm -hmm. teach on zero, you know, they'd be like, okay, well, where's the steps? So it was, it was this information of like how to, how to adapt your frame and how to weight transfer for a different style. And what do you do when the music gets faster? How do you stay safe? Stuff like this. So it was a lot of fun and I wish we could have kept going, <laughs> but you're yeah, right. For it was sure. First outing together. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And as dance partnerships, as you know, and the dance scene are kind of like coming and going and like, how long can you stay compatible and then um, getting booked and all that kind of stuff as well. So that's even a challenge in itself, even when both people are on board and trying to like put out their, their offering you know? Yeah. Yeah. What's good about us is we have, like I said, really different skills. I think (laughs) we kind of look at each other with in class when Mm -hmm. one of us blanks or one of us is like, okay, what to do now? I mean, if you're up there for six hours, it can be challenging. Exactly. Uh, So, so it's, it's nice. We compliment each other well, I think. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So, Looking forward into the rest of 2020 into 2021, what do you have on the horizon or what's your plan? Like, how are you adapting with dancing less and, and things like that? Yeah, well, something that's new that is still a plan that's in the works is that perhaps Jerry would come uh, once a month. We film a lot of stuff and he stays for a week get you know getting covid tested once a month i guess is Mm -hmm. the idea and uh i'm gonna continue efficient follow making the quality better and better and then hopefully putting it all online to a subscription-based platform so Mm -hmm. people can just you know have it all they can watch it whenever they want because for sure for me too when i'm taking classes i'm like do i have to show up for this zoom meeting Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be able to learn in your own pace yeah and not be able to like follow a particular schedule you know yes 
Mm -hmm. So that's that's the main thing we're working on. I'm going to start teaching outside for 10 kids, the same pod, all with masks, um, like an after after school, after virtual school program um, for two hours a week. So that's going to be a huge experiment as well. And I really don't know how it's going to work. <laughs> I'm really curious to see like in, you know, the, the government guidelines are you can't be inside unless you have mm-hmm. air conditioning that filters. So it's, it's just that for me. I got you. It's That's awesome. Things. I think the subscription based model is, is really powerful. Um, for the dance content, you do have to put in the work to create the content, to make it worth the subscription, to keep people on. Yeah. Um, but just to have, have that money rolling in every month and not have to like actively look for people, um, is really, really nice. And I think like you see that uh, coming from a lot of apps and even Adobe, like for Photoshop and all that kind of stuff is switched to a subscription based model. So you're starting to see that a lot with just bigger companies. So I, I think there's something to be said with applying that into your dance offerings for for dance as well right and that's what you do too right mm-hmm. i learned to kids oh then it must be good <laughs> uh okay so uh we are getting close to the hour and a half mark so uh no. to finish did it feel like hour and a half no i'm talking to charles <laughs> Um, but it was awesome to like learn more about your history and space and your mom and how it all started and things like that. And I think you, you did an interview with Jilson not too long ago on your Instagram stories, right? Or yeah. Instagram TV. Are you going to be doing more of those? I got to be the interviewer. Um, uh-huh. Maybe, you know, I'd really like to get more women in Lombada's perspective, but I, I'm going to look out for people who, or I'm either going to have a translator. <laughs> uh, because there's or, the language barrier. Yeah. Yeah. There's the language barrier, but I think that Lombada history is really interesting. Mm. Yeah. It's been fun. I, I've been blushing you guys for the entire time because I, I'm so nervous to tell my entire story. I've never told it like this. Mm. I got you. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And the way that we typically end the podcast is with a piece of advice or inspiration or something like that from from the divine energy above. Do you have anything (laughs) that is flowing through your spirit that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, you know, I was just looking at this quote from Maya Angelou. Mm -hmm. Uh, She says, I think we all have empathy we may not have enough courage to display it. Mm. And that that made me think about social dancing in the way that when we dance with anybody, you know, across styles, across levels, across training history, it takes really a lot of courage to be able to come to the dance with empathy because it, it requires vulnerability and it requires that we maybe you're a beginner in this person's way of communicating. And I think that's relevant to today in a lot of ways. And I just hope that we can, you know, the lessons of dance and life keep crossing over for me in my journey. And, and that seemed like a big one. Um, even though mm. we're not, even though we're not dancing together, we're, we're dancing 
together as a global community and how we go back to normal life if we go back to normal life and to just keep showing up with you know a, a sense of vulnerability and willingness to be a beginner mm, definitely i like that that's a nice quote yeah she's killer mm-hmm. okay hun well it was lovely getting to catch up with you and i'm glad to see that you're doing safe and adapting in this mm-hmm. new world that we're living in and hopefully we'll be able to catch each other soon and and dance yeah yeah i can't wait good to see you thank you so much for having me thank you for checking out the dance your heart on fire podcast today be sure to check out neokizomba.com for links to everything that we chatted about today as well as some awesome free resources to enhance your kizomba journey